Light Warrior Radio. I'm your host, Dr. Karen Ken, author of the number one bestseller, Sensitivity is Your Superpower, How to Harness Your Gifts, Fulfill Your Purpose, and Create a Life of Joy. And if you're new to my tribe, I would love to give you my free gift called the Sensitive Soul Empowerment Guide, the three ways of navigating your way to more peace, positivity, and personal power. And you can get that free at sensitivesoulguide.com. Now, today's topic on Light Warrior Radio is all about happiness. Now, I know some of you might think, well, gee, is it possible to have an expert on happiness? And my answer is yes, there is <laughs> an expert on happiness. And my guest today, Monique Rhodes, is a happiness strategist who teaches students and corporations around the world how to master their lives. And she spent the last 25 years studying the mind and its relationship to happiness and suffering. Over 70 universities and colleges use her program, The 10-Minute Mind, her eight-week online course, The Happiness Baseline, has a 100% success rate in raising the mental wellness for every student who has completed it. How cool is that? Now, Monique hosts the daily In Your Right Mind podcast where she discusses how a series of small habits determine our well-being. And in 2010, she received a nomination for the prestigious New Zealander of the Year Award. Oh, how cool is that? So without further ado, welcome, Monique, to the show. Hi, Dr. Karen. Thank you for having me. Oh, so glad to have you. And uh, I would love to know, as I'm sure my audience would as well, like how does one become a happiness strategist? <laughs> Tell us about your story. Absolutely. Well, it's more out of necessity than anything else, which often is the driver for all of us, mm -hmm. you know, to, to learn skills that we didn't think that we actually uh, needed to learn. But as you can hear from my accent, I grew up in a beautiful country of New Zealand, such a gorgeous, wonderful country with so many fantastic things uh, going for it. But there's always a, a shadow side as well to everything and we have a high rate of child abuse in New Zealand. Um, there's a lot of questions as to why that is and some answers but still something that we struggle with here. And unfortunately I'm one of those statistics. So growing up wasn't easy, was difficult. I think probably by the age of um, you know, my early teens, I think it's probably fair to say that I was quite depressed. And I would kind of wake up in the morning and feel like my emotions were all over the place. Um, I didn't really know how to handle life. I felt afraid in the world a lot. Um, very much a, also a highly sensitive person. So I struggled uh, with the world in a lot of ways. And then at the age of 19, I kind of hit the lowest point. There was a series of things that happened, including one of my best friends dying. And I got to a place where I didn't feel that I could cope, where the despair was, it felt like it was overwhelming me, as uh, sometimes it can do for us. And uh, I ended up in hospital having tried to take my life. And I remember sitting in the hospital bed at 19 years of age, just really wondering, why is it that I struggle so much? What, what's, what is it about me that makes life so hard for me? And why is it that there are other people in my life and in the world that seem to find life just that bit easier? Um, and so what I wanted to do, Karen, was see if I could figure out if there was, if I could answer that question, was it possible for me to find a way through, for me to find a way to shift and change this? And and so I, I went on a mission and I basically uh, for 13 years packed my bag and I traveled and lived out of a bag, I traveled all over the world, I, I traveled all through India on a motorcycle, I've, I've been loads and loads of places. And what I did was I went to see how were other people living, what were the common themes that people were struggling with and could I find techniques and skills to shift what was happening for me. And obviously I have because this is now what I teach. And I have to say the transformation has been so huge that the place that I'm in now is something that I didn't actually even know was possible. And so this is what I now teach all over the world. I teach other people how to shift themselves from that place of struggle 
lift their happiness, but not not as a short-term kind of thing, but as in a really, um, you know, in a long-term way, rather than just getting highs for ourselves. How do we shift our happiness long-term for ourselves? Oh, yes, that is so, so important. And um, that's a very interesting history that you you have. Um, I, I went through a suicidal point in my life as well, and it, it's so interesting that so many of my guests go through you know, some despair stage. So in your search, you know, where you went all over the world um, and were looking for things, uh, you know, was there some sort of research or, you know, something or things that were keys to what you now teach? Like, you know, did you look at, like, what people were doing in universities or were you mostly going to ashrams or, like, what, what was that like? I was really just observing so I remember one of the first circumstances that really had an impact on me was I, I went to Thailand and I remember being in the back streets of uh, the back, yeah, the back kind of area of, of Bangkok and I was, I was going through these canals on a little boat and I remember looking up on a bank and there was a man there and he was sitting in what clearly was his home. And his home was four bamboo poles and over the top was a tarpaulin. And beside him was a few possessions. And I remember looking at this man and seeing a happiness, and it, actually I would say that it was a joy all over his face that I'd never seen in someone before. And I was really moved by this, but I was also deeply confused by it. Why was it that this man who had none of the things that I'd been led to believe would make me happy, how was it that he had so much happiness? And that was my first key when I began to understand that, oh, okay, I've been, I've grown up in the West where I've been led to believe that the more things I can acquire for myself, the more comfort I can have, the more security I can have, the more popular, uh, the more uh, renowned and respected, the happier I will be. And I saw, for the first time, the happiest person I'd ever seen up until that point who had none of those things. And it began to make me question deeply, oh, clearly... The pursuit of happiness is not in the places that I thought it was going to be. Wow. I can sort of see this person in my mind's eye just as you're describing that situation. And it's so true. I, I believe that, I mean, I'm, you know, growing up, but I was taught, you know, to, to, you know, focus on not making mistakes, doing things right, um, you know, getting security, going to school, getting your A pluses, uh, you know, getting a really good job. It'd be really great if you went to medical school, so <laughs> you could have security. Yeah. And uh, that did definitely did not make me happy. Um, and my mother definitely had a long history of depression, and her mother, and so on and so forth. So. Uh, yeah. Uh, have you seen that joke, uh, Monique, where it's, I think it's a meme and, and it says, um, they say money can't buy happiness, but I'd sure like to test that out for myself. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Yes, and of course we do want to test it because I can sit here and say to you, you know, that after a certain amount of money you won't be happier, but it's very hard for us to to really believe that when so much of our world is set up pretty much under a big lie that has led us to believe, listen, buy this, have this, do this, you know, consume this, be famous, you will be happy. But Dr. Karen, if we look at a lot of the people that have all those things, what we see is the same mental health problems that other people have. You know, I remember uh, a few years ago, I went to Las Vegas to see Lady Gaga perform, and she was um, doing this amazing big band, acoustic big band kind of jazz show, and it was phenomenal. She was unbelievable. You know, she's so talented. 
She's really, really a, a, an extremely clever human being. She's beautiful. She's got lots of money. She's got lots of power and respect. She was getting paid $1 million a show. And yet, one of the things that really struck me in the concert was uh, her discussion of how incredibly unhappy she was. And I saw it as a perfect example of someone who had everything, wow. who's actually really, really miserable and, and, and really struggling. So if we look, and even through history, you know, recent history of so many, you know, people who we think are amazing and talented and powerful and wealthy and beautiful, and how many of them have died from drug problems or struggled from alcohol issues or whatever so that so then we can see okay well if if they have all of those things then clearly maybe it's not as simple as i hope but of course we continue to test it out because we are shown uh in our media and uh in the tv shows and things like that 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 is the path that will lead us to happiness but if we all stopped believing it i think that you know, the world uh, consumer-wise and economically-wise would grind to a halt. So I, I see there's a, a big reason to keep us in this kind of story. Mm. Yes. Well, there, there can be a new cultural story, but it's, it's like, you know, turning the Titanic, right? It's not going to be overnight necessarily where we can be in a space of cooperation and building and, uh, you know, community uh, together that it, it does not necessarily mean consumerism per se, uh, although I was very anti-consumerism, and then I realized, you know, sometimes when people make stuff, uh, and they love making stuff for people, I'm in a different space where I'm like, you know what, that's a creation of God, you know, if you, if you will, and it's it's one thing to really appreciate someone's creativity and, and you know, support that business and, and use their product, and another thing to try to fill a void, which, you know, the depressed us whatever that is, you know, the depressed us is trying to fill a void with, with material stu stuff and it's just not going to work as you pointed out. There's so much evidence that it doesn't yeah. work. Yeah. You know, we can, we can have whatever we want. You can have the most beautiful car and the most beautiful home and you can have anything you like as long as you don't fool yourself that it's going to make you happy. It will it will do something for you. It might be really practical. It might you might have a, you know I have a jeep that I love driving. I really enjoy it. Right. And I, I get so much pleasure out of it. And but I don't fool myself into thinking that it's going to give me long term happiness. It won't. It will give me moments of pleasure, and I embrace those. And I love them, and I love so much about my Jeep, but it doesn't mean that that will equal happiness. Happiness and that long-term, solid, grounded happiness is found not outside of ourselves, but actually inside of ourselves, which is deeply empowering because it means just like this gorgeous man in the back streets of Bangkok and Thailand, it's not dependent on wealth. It's not dependent on status. It's something that is accessible to each and every one of us. Mm, that is beautiful. And oftentimes people, myself included, before confused the difference between, you know, joy, happiness, and pleasure. <laughs> you know, because pleasure we think is happiness. Like my mom would often say, and she's a, a wonderful shopaholic. She's very good at it. Less so now, of course, with the pandemic. But um, she, you know, would be like, oh, I got a sale, I got a sale, you know. And she had closets, you know, bursting with, with clothes and costume jewelry and, you know, $2 outfits and whatever. She just loved doing it. But what I observed in childhood, because she went through lots of depression previously, uh, was that these little you know, excitatory highs, it was not true happiness. That underlying that was a sense of dissatisfaction, you know, with life and relationships and whatever it was. And she had to, you know, decided she needed to go on antidepressants and she did that for many years. Um, 
and not anymore. I'm uh, happy to report. Uh, she did um, take some suggestions that I had. <laughs> um, I, you know, I can't say that she's necessarily long-term happy, but um, she certainly is better than where she was before. But like I said, these, these shopping trips were like this little high. And then she would email, oh, I'm so happy. And I'm thinking, I wouldn't call it happy, but <laughs> you know, you're definitely kind of like high and jazzed up at this moment since you bought something. And I've had the same thing, so I empathize. Absolutely. And I think we all have those things. You know, sometimes it's food, sometimes it's alcohol, sometimes it's TV shows. Chocolate. Yeah. And it's great to have things to look forward to. It's great to have... Disney World. You know, yeah it's, yeah, it's great to have those things. But to have a lasting happiness that will see you through when times are difficult, when you don't have access to all of those things, you know, because you're in a pandemic or those things don't work anymore. You know, the problem is, is that when we have those highs and we rely on them, is that we have one. Like, mm. let's say, for example, you know, you, there's a sale on, you go buy these clothes, and you feel so good, and you're so happy, and tomorrow that happiness is going to have waned and the next day even further. And then what happens is, is that you need to find the next thing. And then the same cycle right. happens again. Then you have to find the next thing. So it's never ending. And you're always kind of on the hunt for what is going to bring me the next high. Whereas I see those things now as almost the cherry on top. You know, so that the, the happiness level is really solid and these kind of high experiences are like bonuses rather than relying on me feeling good by having them. Does that make sense? Ah, yes, yes. So, so, I mean, I'm a medical doctor, so I liken it to, you know, having a very balanced neuroendocrine system where, you know, all the hormones and neuroendocrine systems are very balanced, the, the neurotransmitters are balanced, but in somebody that doesn't have those balanced neurotransmitters, they need a hit. So they need a dopamine hit. So they need to go shopping or they need to watch porn or they need to like go down a roller coaster or you know do something dangerous so they have that hit so they could get back to that normality but it's it's not normal because it's not staying there it's not sustainable and what yes. you're talking about is a state of being that is sustainable that is not uh, um it, that, that does not require uh, something from the outside world necessarily to cause it to happen exactly that's exactly it. So, so what we live in a world of is these endless um, things that are dangled in front of us to give us those hits. And, uh, and of course, the reliance on that part of how our brain works is how social media companies are so successful because they're completely hooked in to giving us that hit. And... You know, more and more as we look at our food and we look at the way the world is, we are more and more reliant on those hits. And at the same time, our stress, anxiety and depression levels are at an all-time high. I think that pre-COVID, the World Health Organization said that by 2030, depression would be the number one uh, health problem worldwide surpassing obesity. And I would probably think that that has been sped up by COVID. So we have all these things to give us a high. We're, you know, even more comfortable in the way that we live than any, any generation of human beings has ever been. And yet we're more stressed, anxious and depressed than any generation has as well. So we have to start looking at this and thinking, what is it that we're doing wrong? Because clearly all of these wonderful things that we have that lead us to believe that we're living in this kind of golden age aren't doing the job that we think that they're doing. 
Mm-hmm. Well, and I am definitely very concerned about the, the statistics, if they are real, uh, about the increase in mental illness among our young people and the suicide rates yeah. going up. Now, I don't know if that's real or whether that's a narrative or whatever it is, but it is of concern. And so there's, you know, uh, so-called negative influences from the outside world that kind of affects our well-being. And I think the work that you're doing is really saying, hey, no matter what's going on in the world, if we can figure out, not figure out, but access that foundational sustainable happiness and realizing it is from an inside job, it doesn't matter what is happening in the outside world, we will weather that. Um, so, yeah, we, we need to share your message loud and clear and all over the place um, because uh, I would love to um, save these children. Yes, absolutely. I think it's a very difficult time for young people and I think that there's a lot of good reason that it's a really difficult time and they're being taught the same things that we're being taught. Here is a device that we carry around with us all day that whenever we feel an uncomfortable emotion or we're, whenever we're alone or we feel lonely or we're sitting at a restaurant and the friend has gone to the bathroom, we don't have to be alone. We can pull this machine out and divert ourselves from just sitting quietly with whatever's going on. And this is really problematic because if we don't learn how to sit with our difficult emotions, we end up in a world where we're constantly grasping for whatever it is to run away from our emotions. And in learning to run away from our emotions, we're creating even more problems for ourselves. Oh, yes, yes. You know, it's funny. I don't know if you've ever had anyone say this to you, Monique, but uh, I was joking with some of my Sensitive Soul tribe members uh, about we, we were doing like um, playing around with worst case scenarios and feeling, you know, calm and feeling the energy in our bodies and all that kind of stuff, right? So in one particular class, uh, I, I was just, I thought, I'd, I just asked randomly. I'm like, okay, 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 guys. So if, if you ever landed in jail, Okay, not that you guys would, but if you ever landed in jail and they put you into solitary confinement, would that be a thumbs up or thumbs down? And everyone's like, thumbs up, <laughs> right? Because these are my tribe are people who actually prefer the quiet, and even though their internal dialogue may be, you know, sometimes not so great, um, they have at least some awareness that uh, that is, you know, where the, the healing is, is internally. And, and we're so sensitive, we feel other people's stuff. So if we're in a jail cell or whatever, like we're much happier by ourselves you know, than all these other energies around us. But I think for the average convict, I'm, I'm not speaking for them, but I'm just guessing here, um, I would say that being in a room by themselves and that is a huge punishment because they are alone with those thoughts. Well, there was a study done a few years ago. I don't, I don't know if you've heard of this study, but there was a study done where they, they put people into a room for, for 15 minutes, and they said to them, look, the only thing that's in this room is, uh, is this device that will give you an electric shock to your ankle. How, how, you know, how, many of you, how many of you think that you'll use this device? And everybody, of course, said, no, I won't. But if I remember rightly, 67% of the men and 25% of the women used the electric shock rather than sit in a room by themselves alone for 15 minutes. Wow. So that's where we've got to, where 15 minutes is really tough. And even though we may be highly sensitive and we may say to ourselves, I like the quiet, and, you know, because it helps my, to keep my nervous system relaxed and mm -hmm. not triggering all the time. There is also a difference between I like being in the quiet and I like being in the quiet with absolutely nothing to do. And mm -hmm. there is a difference in that because I think that a lot of us would, would say, yeah, I would, I would love to be in that prison cell if I could have a really good book. Or, you know, if there was something there that I could keep my mind occupied with. Uh, right. and, and, that, and I think that that's the big difference is that, you know, even I think it was in the, 
17th century. So we can see this is a long-term problem. The, the philosopher Pascal said something along the lines of man's biggest problem is his inability to sit by himself in a room. <laughs> and also, this is a this is a long term thing where we struggle just to sit with us. We're so afraid of us. We're so afraid of our thoughts. We're so afraid of our emotions. We'll do anything to avoid it. We'll fill our lives with activities and jobs and things that we need to do that are so incredibly important. We we now have the ability to stream music, TV shows, like anything to distract ourselves from being with us because we're so afraid of what happens in our mind. But if we can learn to work with the mind, then we have the ability to start to literally transform our whole life. And this is where the key is. You know, we spend we spend so much time taking care of the external and, you know, when we think about it, the amount of time we spend cleaning our home and, you know, putting good food into our body and keeping, you know, everything so beautiful. But when was the last time you cleaned out your mind? You know, our minds are like a, I think of those antique shops in, in New Zealand. I've never been to one uh overseas but in New Zealand uh, whenever I go home I go into these antique stores and they're so jam-packed and you can barely move that's what our minds are like it's like <laughs> it's like we have a we have this house which is our mind and we leave all of the windows and doors open everything open and we we wonder why there's so many problems in our head because we have no boundaries around what we put into this mind and we never go and clean it out. So it's like it's like having a home where you leave all the doors and windows open and anybody and anything can walk in. Mm -hmm. Of course you're going to have problems. But that's what we do. We just let all this information and we watch violent TV shows. It's very hard to find a TV show that's not violent. We watch a lot of violence. We watch a lot of um, highly sexualized material. We wake up in the morning. So many people put the news on and disturb themselves with that. And then, of course, online there's all the advertising. We're just inundated with information that is stressful and anxiety creating and we wonder why we're stressed, we wonder why we're anxious, we wonder why we're depressed because our mind is just filled with so much information that actually is of very little benefit to us and more importantly is having a massive impact on us particularly if we're highly sensitive. Mm -hmm. It's like we need to empty out that recycle bin in our mental computer. <laughs> we need to, not only do we need to clean out our mind, but we need to protect it. Mm. We need to take care of it in a way that we're not encouraged to do at all. In fact, we're encouraged to do the exact opposite. So it's really important that we understand that. You know, if, if everyone's doing something, and at the moment everyone's online, everyone's on their phones all the time, and everyone's getting a similar result, everyone's stressed, anxious, overwhelmed, sad, and depressed, maybe we need to start thinking about what we can do differently because what everyone's doing isn't working. Mm -hmm. So in your exploration, what is working? There's one thing that sits at the crux of it all, which is understanding that happiness and suffering do not come from outside of ourselves. Happiness and suffering come from our mind. And for most of us, our minds are completely out of control. And that's just normal. We've not worked with it. We've not trained our mind. We've not tamed our mind. I always, always kind of imagine it like you wake up in the morning and there's this, this door that's open to your mind the minute you wake up. And outside that door is a wild pony with no bridle and no saddle. <laughs> and we're pretty much thrown onto it. And it runs around all day. Every so often it stops, has a little bit of food, but it gets spooked very quickly. And we're literally just holding on for dear life. 
if you can learn how to work with your mind, one of the most important things that I've learned is that when you wake up in the morning, you open that door to your mind, there's a beautiful calm horse there with a bridle and a saddle and you get to be in charge of where mm. it goes rather than the other way around. And so I believe that the most powerful skill that any of us can learn to be happier, which is what we all want, is to begin to build a relationship with your own mind, begin to understand it, and begin to tame it, begin to train it, so that you're in charge of it rather than it being in charge of you. Mm-hmm. Yes, I totally resonate with that. And you talk about happiness actually being a habit. So are you talking about these three things with the mind being a habit or becoming a habit? Absolutely. I think that what, what I've learned over the years is our mind goes to habitual places. Okay, I want to I give you an example. You imagine that, oh, just look around your room. Okay, look at anything that you have in your room that you go, oh, I really love this. There's something I really love. So at the moment, I'm looking at this mug that I've got in front of me that I bought. Um, it's a tin mug. It's like an old camping mug. And on it is a beautiful little insignia of a retreat center in New Zealand that I've taught at that I really love. And when I look at this mug, you know, why did I buy that mug? And what we believe in the moment is that we think, oh, I saw this mug and I really liked it and I bought it. But actually the reason that I bought the mug is because of a series of events that happened earlier. So the series of events that happened earlier are that a tin mug reminds me of when I went camping as a kid. So it's associated with a good feeling. And it comes from a company that I've had a lot to do with that I have a really good emotional um, memory of. So when I look at this mug, I think of New Zealand. I think of a part of New Zealand that I love being in, that I spent a lot of time in as a kid. I think of this retreat center that I've taught in. And I have a lot of good feelings. So in buying this mug, I actually bought it based on past experiences rather than looking at the mug just as it was and buying it. And this is what we don't seem to understand is that let's, let's think about like a time which I know all of us can remember where maybe we were in a conversation with someone, this will often happen with a partner or a child or a parent, and they say something and immediately we feel triggered. That part of us feels triggered like maybe with anger or grief or sadness or something like that. One of those really hot kind of reactions. And if you look at it closely, what you will understand is, let's say your, your husband or your wife says something to you and you feel that rage in you. When you look closely at it, what you'll understand is that rage is actually based on experiences that have happened before. Mm -hmm. You'll be able to remember if you look closely situations in your childhood usually, perhaps where a, a parent or a teacher or someone else in your life has said something similar. And so what that means is that all of the past experiences that we've had and stored are being brought into our everyday present moment and so most of the time we're living our reactions are actually from the past mm -hmm. rather than from this very moment and so what that means is is that we get ourselves into habitual ways of being when somebody says something that we find triggering it the triggering is just a habit based on what's happened to us before in the same way where, that when I saw this mug, my habitual way of being was to be triggered in a positive way mm -hmm. because I have so many positive associations with this mm -hmm. part of the world and with, with this, you know, with this, just this mug. And every time I look at it, I feel good. 
And so that's where it's really important for us to understand is that all of this information is stored in our mind but also in our nervous system. And one of the most vital things that we have to do is slow down that knee-jerk reaction from stimulus to reaction where the mind is going instantly into a response. And if we can slow that down and we do that by learning how to work with our mind, we start to move out of habitual ways of being and we start to be able to step more into conscious or ways of being where we get to choose how we are in the world rather than just being a reactionary human being who's mm. reacting all over the place to the stimulus that's presented to them. Oh, yes. I, I love that. And it's one of the things that I talk about a lot of is that reactivity, I call it. That um, when we are just constantly reacting, reacting, reacting to life, we're not actually not creating our life and also we're not responding to life which then informs the universe if you will to, to you know what gives us next and if we're reacting the universe goes oh you want more to react to okay I'll do that for you because I love you you know <laughs> exactly and it's uh, not as though like we can't we can't think our way out of it that's the thing it's not like I can say to myself this triggers me and next time I'm not going to let it trigger me because the because when our mind is not tamed, it's almost like, you know that, you know when you turn your phone on to, uh, you turn your phone off and someone calls you and it goes instantly to uh, the answer phone. That's how fast our reactions are. It happens in a millisecond. So it's not something we can think our way out of. It's something we actually have to train our way out of. Mm-hmm. So it requires training. So. I mean, you have some practical tools that you teach people, right, in terms of increasing their happiness quotient. So is, is you know, pausing or slowing down, is there a tool to help us remember to do that? Yeah, the most obvious one that, you know, some people struggle with, but here we are, the most obvious one is a meditation practice, a daily meditation practice, a meditation practice that is teaching you to come back to the present moment, not a practice that takes you off into a creative visualization, but a practice that teaches you how to be here. So it brings the mind back to the present moment so that you can start to almost wrangle it. You know, I see, see it like a little bit like a cowboy where you're wrangling <laughs> that mind back in and bringing it back to being here so that you build the muscle to learn to be in the present moment. I see medita a meditation practice and a daily meditation practice as a superpower. Mm. I think it is the most powerful skill that I've learned. I was very resistant to it and it has been a game changer for me. I've practiced it for over 20 years and I've found it to be just phenomenal for a lot of reasons. But the biggest one is it's taught me how to get to know myself, taught me how to be less afraid of myself. It's helped me a lot with my hypersensitivity because my nervous system, like a lot of your listeners, is I'm a very highly sensitive person. And it's helped me to manage that hugely because a lot of the time when we are highly sensitive, what is also happening is that our mind is racing quite quickly when we get outside stimulus. So if we can learn to calm the mind, it also calms the body. If we learn to calm the body, it also calms the mind. So learning meditation practice is also very, very powerful to help us with these hypersensitive nervous systems that a lot of us have. Oh, so yes. I can't, I can't encourage any of you more than to, than to find a meditation practice that you like. Like I have a program called The 10-Minute Mind. It's 10 minutes a day. I'm a real believer and I would rather that you did 10 minutes, which we've proved works, 10 minutes a day regularly than try and do half an hour, an hour every so often. It's about regularity. It's almost like you're setting yourself up for the day. It's a, it's a very, very powerful practice. 
Yes, that consistency is big. And I, I remember my uh, Reiki teacher used to um, suggest kindly that I do maybe 10 minutes of meditation a day. And I really resisted it uh, for many years. And partly because um, I watched everybody around me who did meditate sometimes for an hour or two hours a day. And I thought, well, their lives aren't any better than mine, so why should I? <laughs> Seriously, I was very pragmatic. I love um, I had it. To find my way, uh, my way is through feeling energy in the body because I'm so clairsentient. So that is the easy way for me just to notice the energy in my body and the mind ends up shutting off because it's being told what to do. <laughs> it's like, where's that energy? Where'd it go? Yeah, Here it is. Okay. Right. Pay attention. And, and so that's, that's my way. I'm not saying that's the, the way, because uh, but for people that are like active and super busy and the mind is like, blah, 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 you know, uh, that worked for me. And so how do you do yours? Yeah, I, I really also love what you said. You know, I, I saw people who meditated for an hour a day and their lives were no better. It's important to understand that there's a lot of reasons why that could be. First of all, it could be, gosh, their lives would be even worse if they didn't. But it could also be that, you know, I often meet people, particularly when I was living in India, who would say to me, oh, I just meditated for an hour and I had no thoughts. And I would think, wow, you must have been stoned because there's no <laughs> way that you meditated for an hour and had no thoughts. So I think it's sleeping. Yes. So I think there's two things. It's to find a program that you enjoy. That's, that's the most important. It needs to be something that you want to go and do. And the second thing is to try it for 30 days. That's it. So in the 10-minute mind, we really encourage people to try it for 30 days. We have a 10-day trial you can try. But I promise you, if you do it for 30 days, you will see a shift in yourself. I have not had anyone who hasn't. So you, it doesn't matter what anyone else's experience is. You have to see what is my experience and do it as an experiment. And this is, this is how I have learned everything over the years. Someone will say to me, oh, I tried this, it was amazing, and I try it. Does it work for me? Yes or no. I believe personally that meditation works for everybody. I just think you have to find the right program. Don't also fool yourself into thinking, oh, I can just sit by myself for 10 minutes and that's meditating. Meditating is a skill set. And I encourage you to learn from someone who has been practicing for a long time because it's a very specific skill set. I've taught a lot of people who have said, oh, I just sit for half an hour. That's called ruminating. So that is not meditating. <laughs> right? Very different. Funny. So it's yeah. important for us to, yeah, to work with a qualified teacher and see it as a, as a serious skill that, if you take it on, will support you for the rest of your life. And if you take it on, you will continue to be learning it for the rest of your life. It is not a skill, I think, that any of us master. But it is amazing. And you will find a relationship with yourself if you practice meditation that you've never had. Because one of the biggest things that we learn in meditation is when those emotions come up, that we struggle with, that we run away from, we learn to stay. We learn to just sit with them and know that they will pass. Everything passes. And so if we can learn in our meditation practice to sit and the anxiety rises, we look at it, and we see after a period of time it dissolves, then in our everyday life, instead of running away from our emotions, instead of running away from our thoughts, we can just see them as transient. We don't take them as seriously. And we allow them just to rise up and dissolve back into our mind as naturally as the waves do in the ocean. Mm. Yes, yes. I believe that. Um, I think people in the past, or myself in the past, have been so afraid to feel any negative thought and even you know like the their popular movies like the secret which is like you know think positive and be positive otherwise you'll attract negative things you know <laughs> 
So then we're yeah. afraid of even entertaining what is there. And like I said, for me, I was like, oh, don't think negative, don't think negative. So it was only when I was able to feel it in the body as just energy that that was my doorway, you know, to to that place. Uh, other people have other, you know, techniques, other things. And like you said, do what works. Um, and it, it hasn't absolutely been definitely, you know, powerful for me personally as well. I think that you bring up a really interesting point as well, Dr. Karen, of this world that we live in of kind of hyper-positivity. Mm. And I think it's problematic because there's light and shadow to everything. And if we if we live in this false place of I'm going to bypass all of my negative emotions with positivity, again, what we're doing is telling ourselves a lie that we don't believe. So it's almost like there's a, um, you know, we create a fracture in ourselves where we're telling ourselves this lie, everything's okay, everything's okay, when actually we have these difficult emotions that are banging on the door saying, please, I need you to attend to me. But the interesting thing is this, is that something to know that's really helpful is that the more we look at positive emotions, the more they grow. This is where looking at positive emotions and staying positive in a lot of levels is really helpful. At the same time, when we look at our negative emotions, they dissolve. So if we can have a practice where we're celebrating all the good things, because a lot of people don't manage that either, and at the same time attending to our negative emotional states and allowing those to breathe, looking at them, observing them, where do they sit in my body, what do they feel like, do they have a color, what do they look like, and looking at them without the story that runs with them, seeing mm -hmm. the emotion in its purest form, then what we're then able to do is allow those emotions to breathe. Because whatever we, we um, resist literally persists. And that's why we're struggling. Because we're, oh, I put on this happy face and I go into the world really positively, but actually I'm feeling terrible inside. So we're living this lie. Mm. So there's a balance to be had of, yeah, it's really important to look out the window and look at all the things that you can be grateful for. And when the negative emotions come up, don't push them away. But look at them differently. Look at them in their purest form without the stories that you run in your head. How we learn how to do that? Through meditation. Mm. Yeah, well said, well said. Now, how do people get access to or find out more about the 10-Minute Mind? Yeah, look, just come to my website, monikroads.com. You know, come and try the 10-minute mind out for 10 days for free. You know, there's nothing to lose. The happiness baseline as well, you can actually do it for free. We do things a little bit differently there where we do an accountability bond. The reason is this, is that I just want you to be successful. So we don't charge a fee. I get you to put down an accountability bond, and I give you 10 weeks to do this eight-week course. It will take you about 15 minutes a day. It's all about building habits, all right? If you complete the course at the end of the 10 weeks, you just write to us, you say, I want my accountability bond back. No questions asked, we give it back. We have a 100% success rate. We test people at the beginning with the Penn State University Happiness Inventory, which is the standard happiness test. We test you at the end, and we have 100% success in shifting people's happiness levels. So come try one of those courses. The, the great thing about the Happiness Baseline is it goes deeply into teaching you to work with the mind, I think, in week three. So it's a wonderful course, and I, I can't encourage you more to come and do it and do it with, no, you know, there's, there's no issue there. You just do the course, and you can get your money back. And that's why we have a 92% completion rate on the course, whereas a usual wow. course rate is a 3% completion rate. <laughs> Which is why I, which is why I do it this way, so there's no wow. barrier to anyone coming and doing. Oh, the that's work. beautiful. That's great. So let me just spell out your name for everyone. So it's uh, M O N I Q U E, and then the last name R 
H-O-D-E-S.com. So MoniqueRhodes.com, and that's where you can check this out. And it's uh, there's links right on the the homepage. And uh, yeah, and so uh, is there something uh, that people can do if they want to work with you individually? Do you do that? I do. I I only do a few sessions with people. I'm a complete believer that uh, everyone that I work with on a coaching session has one fundamental belief that's holding them back and that's what I do is I just spend a couple of sessions deep diving into that and then looking at strategies to work with that. That's why we have very quick results with the private coaching that I do. So we just do yeah, a couple of sessions. So yeah, there's lots of ways that you can work with me. Um, I'm very involved in my courses so my classes aren't courses where they are online, you do access them, but I'm there in there every day answering questions, um, you know, seeing how you're getting on. So I'm very, very hands-on with my work. Oh, that's fantastic. Well, a lot of times people just need that, you know, hand-holding, and then there's nothing wrong with that. I think, you know, that sounds like a negative thing in our society. Oh, somebody needs to hold my hand. You know, but I think it's absolutely necessary, really, that accountability and that kindness and accountability. We're not talking about someone who's like a militant, whip you into shape kind of person, you know, uh, but that kindness has been so that accountability has been so huge uh, for me that I just absolutely, you know, love it and rely on it now uh, because we treat ourselves like an island. Sometimes it, we, we can only see what we have seen before, like we're, we're not seeing other things because our perspective is what we've gained from our past. So it's really helpful uh, to have other perspectives and for someone to follow along and just, you know, um, keep us accountable. So everyone that I know that's highly successful and happy and, you know, even wealthy, I mean, they all have at least one accountability partner or partners. So I think that's great that you've created these um, these courses and that people can access so easily. So folks, if you're listening in, it's MoniqueRhodes.com, so M-O-N-I-Q-U-E-R-H-O-D-E-S.com. Um, Monique, do you have anything else you want to share with our students today, with our followers today? Just one, one last thing, Dr. Karen. I just want to say to all of you, you know, I know that we're living in a difficult time right now, and I know what it feels like to be someone who's highly sensitive. And I want you to know that when you begin to truly work with your mind and understand that the mind is the decider of whether you're happy or whether you're struggling, there's something so wonderful about that because you start to begin to realize that you have the ability to be in charge mm. of how you're feeling. And I just want you to know that because the world is a difficult place right now and we need more and more people like Dr. Karen in the world doing this amazing work. It's important for us to really know that there is a way through, that we don't have to live with depression. We don't have to live with stress and anxiety. And, and that if we can really learn to work with our mind, we can master our life. And that's what I want for all of you. So I, I love the work Dr. Karen's doing. If you want to come and spend some time working with me, I would love to get to know you. Hmm, beautiful. Thank you, Monique. It's wonderful to have you on the show today. We really, really appreciate you. And we want to appreciate all of our light warriors and sensitive souls as well, because with all of us together, we're bringing the light to the world and pulling it out of darkness. Thank you so much. Lots of love. Thank you, Dr. Karen. 